Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Barry Motives. We are so excited that you're joining us today. It is spooky season. And if you've been with us for a while, you'll know that this is Christy's favorite time of the year. I love it. I am a spooky girl at heart, for sure. I am not. (laughs) But even though Melissa says she's not, she does come along for the ride. And I appreciate that about her. (laughs) For every scary movie. (laughs) It's true. Freaks me out every time. But I'll be the first one to admit, I do work myself up a little bit. (laughs) Totally. It's never as bad as you think it's going to be. No. I'm just the biggest scaredy cat. (laughs) I can concur. She is. (laughs) I can work myself up even after listening to Christy's cases if we record too late at night. (laughs) That's true. She's often scared to drive home by herself at night. (laughs) Or even if we want to go see a scary movie, she's like, we have to see a matinee or I can't go. (laughs) That's because the craziest things always happen on my drive home. I am constantly seeing things. Like the last time that we recorded late at night, I saw that person sitting in my car. Do you remember? Yes. How can I forget? I am sure it was just my own reflection, but it totally freaked me out. Yeah, but the hairstyles didn't match. That is true. It was very creepy, listeners. I walked out of Christy's house after recording and it was late, really, really dark. And I walked past my car. And I looked in the passenger seat and there was a woman sitting in my passenger seat. She just showed up for a second and then she was gone. And I did a double take and I was like, no, Melissa, you're just being a scaredy cat. You just saw your own reflection. So then I got seated in the driver's seat and I started thinking, wait a minute. The person that I had seen sitting in the passenger seat had their hair down and I was wearing my hair up that night. It couldn't have been my reflection. It couldn't have been. (laughs) So then the whole way home, I was totally freaked out. Yeah, Melissa let me know about that and was very animated in her description of what had just happened. (laughs) It freaked me out. Rightfully so. Well, sometimes I think I just work myself up. But I think that's what happened while researching this case. It was a little creepy. Of course, there's that fact that the dirtbag in this case chose to commit his crime on Halloween. In the cold Canadian air, he used the shroud of darkness to take a life, using the shrieks and squeals of other trick-or-treaters to hide the ones of his victim. Oh, that is always so freaky. Because with Halloween, you can walk down a street all bloody holding a dagger and nobody's going to think anything of it. No, that's what made it so creepy. And then he just disappears into thin air. Obviously, he didn't really, but that's what it seemed like to the police. And then there was the fact that there are a lot of similarities between the victim's interests and yours. Mine? Yes. She loved Halloween and RuPaul's Drag Race. Oh, man. She loved life and always was up for a little bit of fun, even if the fun was a little bit immature. Who, me? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This young woman, whose murder we're going to talk about today, seemed to be my own friend. Oh, no, Mm -hmm. this is a little eerie. Yes. And then the tragedy of it all hit home just a little bit harder when I found myself only an hour away from her memorial site while on vacation. (gasps) Oh, I made a side trip to pay my respects to the memorial site of the beautiful 18-year-old Taylor Van Deest, 
and the person she was to so many people. Oh, that's so sad. When you see those memorials too, it just totally brings it to life. It absolutely does. She was taken away much too early by the dirtbag Matthew Forrester. Matthew Stephen Forrester was raised by his father Stephen Roy Forrester in the interior southern region of British Columbia, Canada. It is known as the Okanagan, and it is a very pretty area of Canada that is very popular in the summer because of its warm lakes and its picturesque scenery. And its delicious fruit. In recent years, it has become very popular in the fall, though, for its wine tours. Oh, it's very pretty there in the fall. From the publicly accessible information available, there was little mention of Matt's mother. I believe she exited his life in his preschool or early elementary years because he does have a full sister that is four years younger than him. While I couldn't ascertain why his mom exited the picture, I think it is interesting in light of the rage that he shows against women in his later life. Ooh. There are some brief mentions of his mother in media outlets attending his trial, but they are very vague. And I think they could have easily been referring to his stepmom who was supportive of him at that time. Oh, yeah, that would make sense. And we do know by our research that often a killer will have an unusual relationship with his mother. Right. So that's why I found the lack of mention of her so interesting. Mm -hmm. Matthew and his sister Stephanie were raised by their father, which again, I find interesting because he didn't provide the greatest example. Stephen struggled with his own addictions and propensity for breaking the law. He had been known to the local police since he was a teen himself when he stole a car at the age of 15. Throughout the years, Stephen would be convicted of numerous offenses like possession of drugs, restricted weapons, and escaping custody. He worked at random jobs supporting his children until he eventually married Deborah Hanganger, and things seemed to turn around for him then. At least he stopped piling up his criminal offenses. They bought a home in Cherryville, BC, a small rural community in the North Okanagan, and Deborah stayed home with the kids. Cherryville, if its name doesn't already conjure up the image, was a quaint town of barely over 600 people in 2011. It was a place where everyone knew everyone. The town is among the foothills of the mountains surrounded by crystal blue lakes. Oh, gorgeous. Deborah had an older boy of her own, Michael. He was a little older than Matt and his sister, but from the reports I read, it seemed like they all got along and bonded well, especially the two boys. So much so that Mike with the help of Stephanie, would be the ones to get Matt to later confess. There were some reports that said Michael was Matt's half-brother, and there were some reports that said stepbrother. I'm not 100% sure of the biological relationship there, or even if there was one, but it did appear like these two had a close relationship either way. So they were family either way you cut it. That's right. Didn't really matter about their blood bonds. They were family. As a young child, it seems like Matt struggled and at the age of 14 started drinking. It soon escalated into smoking marijuana. As a teen, he had problems with impulse control and anger, which, with the combination of drugs and alcohol, is never a good mix. Matt developed an attitude of taking what he wanted, just like his father, when his father had stolen a car at his age. He did graduate from Charles Bloom Secondary School in Lumbee, BC in 2004, but it was pretty clear he was following in his father's footsteps, heading straight for disastrous outcomes. In the fall after graduating high school with no real purpose, the now 18-year-old Matt decided that one of the things that he would like to pursue was one of his friend's older sisters. Ooh, that's a bold move. Mm Mm-hmm. In true dirtbag fashion, though, he couldn't just ask her out on a date. That would give her the opportunity to say no to him. Matt had been fantasizing about this girl, but felt that he didn't have a chance with her. 
He would later say that he felt like, quote, things just wouldn't work out between them. Matt decides, with the help of some liquid courage, that the best course of action would be to sneak into her bedroom wearing a mask. What? Mm-hmm. That's not going to win her over, honey. That's what he thought. On October 19th, 2004, at around 8.30 a.m., Matt snuck into his friend's sister's bedroom wearing a mask and armed with a BB gun. He woke up the 19-year-old Callie Paul, banging her head against the bedroom wall, <gasps> splitting it wide open. No! Mm-hmm. With her dazed and confused, Matt demands that she follow him. When they were out in the hallway, Callie fell to the floor, bleeding profusely from her head wound, and she demanded to know if Matt intended to use the gun that he was carrying to shoot her. He sinisterly told her no. He wanted her. That's when she started to scream. Oh. She thought she was going to pass out and was probably terrified of what would happen to her if she did, so she kept on screaming. Her screams scared Matt, and he took off, fleeing back to his own house in the early morning light. Callie was confident that she knew who her attacker was, despite the mask that Matt had worn. Remember, in a small town of only 600 people, total in all age groups, you're going to be pretty familiar with the ones close to your age, especially if they're hanging out with your younger brother. Yeah, I'm sure she would have heard him speak many times. So she had no difficulty identifying him. And what a terrible first offense. That was really violent. Mm-hmm. Usually dirtbags have to work their way up to that. It's true. After Matt fled the house, Callie went straight to the police and reported the attack and identified Matt as her attacker. The Lumbee RCMP officers brought Matt in for questioning along with Stephen, who insisted on coming along with his son. And really, I'm not surprised. Oh, yeah. I think I would insist on going too. He's a minor. Mm-hmm. Even without the tumultuous relationship with the authority that Stephen had, I think most parents would go just to be protective of their own child. Absolutely. But I don't think that protection, though, would extend to what Stephen does next. During the interview, he provides an alibi for Matt, saying that he was home at the time of the attack, oh. and that Stephen had saw Matt wake up in his house at 9am. If you were to give Stephen the benefit of the doubt, and say maybe he was tricked by Matt, that he didn't see him sneak back into the house, and just saw him coming out of his bedroom, you would be sorely mistaken, because this is a sad pattern that will repeat itself. This dirtbag dad lied for his dirtbag son. Oh, and that is not helping him because we know he's going to grow up to be even a bigger monster. Mm -hmm. With what police believe to be a solid alibi, they moved on to look at other suspects. Of course, they couldn't find any because Matt was their guy. Oh. The case remained unsolved with Callie and her family living in terror, not even feeling safe in their own home. Especially knowing who your attacker is and seeing him just walk free. Mm -hmm. But the police said it couldn't be him because he had this alibi. I wonder how many parents would lie for their kids. While researching this case, I had that same question so many times. Yeah. Would you lie for your kid? No, I don't think so. No. Of course, it's impossible to say what you would do right in the moment, but I don't think I would. No, my first instinct isn't to either. I would want to know what's going on. Because if my son just attacked a young girl viciously enough to crack her head open, I would want to get him some help and figure out what the heck is going on. That's what I thought too. What he goes on to do next is even more awful than letting Matt off the hook this time. Matt, with his get out of free jail card provided by his daddy's alibi, does not take this as an opportunity to get help for his growing addiction to control women for his own purposes. Instead, he fans the flames. 
Just eight months later, he entered the Garden of Eden Escort Agency in Kelowna, B.C. on April 12, 2005. Kelowna is the closest big city to Cherryville. It's about an hour and a half away. Posing as a potential client, he encouraged the lone employee to give him a tour of the building. Once he had her upstairs in a secluded area, he grabbed her ponytail and forced her onto the ground. This time, he used a knife to subdue his victim and promised that he wouldn't hurt her if she performed oral sex on him. He ensures that she will by holding a knife to her throat. Oh, what a pig. Next, he forces her onto her stomach, onto one of the massage tables, binds her hands with duct tape, and sodomizes her. No. He's barely even an adult right now. No, this is what he does when he's still a teenager. And isn't the whole point of this establishment to have those things done for you at a price? Well, it's called a escort service, but that's what it sounded like. Hmm, interesting. We're not saying one way or the other, but it might have been a place that finished with a happy ending. So he might have been able to just pay for that service. So obviously, he doesn't want to just pay for the services. He wants to inflict pain and suffering and terror over a woman. Exactly. It was all about the control for him. How terrible. It really is. When he was done, he fled the scene. This brave woman, whose name has been protected, fought her way free with the help of a woman who was working next door and went to the police and reported the rape. But again, despite collecting DNA evidence, the police were unable to make the connection between the attack and Matt. The attacker just disappeared. Matt moved out of his family home and settled in the slightly larger town of Lumbee, B.C., about 20 minutes west of Cherryville and 25 minutes east of Vernon, nestled right in the middle of both of them. I find it hard to believe that there were not more women that Matt attacked and violated. Sexual predators rarely de-escalate or stop without any help. And I think it's clear from several of his statements made after the fact that he was spiraling out of control, especially when it came to his sexual fantasies. There are several times that he refers to being compelled to carry out fantasies in his mind, saying that, quote, it's like another person took over me. I think there could be many other victims, but Matt would not be linked to any other crimes until the fateful Halloween night in 2011 when he met Taylor Van Deist in Armstrong. Oh. Armstrong is the town in Canada made famous for its cheese. I was just going to ask, Armstrong cheese? Yep. <laughs> It is about 20 minutes north of Vernon. If you were to draw a map around this dirtbag's attacks, it would literally draw a circle around his home. A whole wheel of cheese. Yeah, a little elongated maybe. But he did not travel far to find his victims, which I think points to his impulsiveness. Yeah, and it's not that uncommon actually with predators. And I agree with you. I do not believe that these attacks were few and far between. No, I don't think they just stopped. He escalated so quickly from that first one, to commit his second one only eight months later, and it had already escalated in violence. Yeah. And so his next attack is going to be even worse. Taylor Van Deest was an 18-year-old that had just graduated from Pleasant Valley Secondary School. She seemed like the sweetest, good-hearted girl. Halloween was her absolute favorite holiday. Although she was 18 and recognized that she was what most people would think too old to go trick-or-treating, she couldn't help herself and talked a few of her friends into coming out with her. Oh, I love that. She actually pulled on her social media, am I too old to go out? She had this big moral dilemma over it. <laughs> to that I say, no. Yeah. <laughs> Any teenager that is going to go out trick-or-treating on Halloween, I say, bring them on. You can come to my house. I will give you a chocolate <laughs> bar. 
<laughs> no, she won't. She gives whole two liter bottles a pop. That's true. Sometimes. <laughs> her boyfriend, Colton, and her twin sister, Christy, were not ones, though, that she could convince to go out with her. But she did have two other friends, Zoe and Clay, that agreed to go with her. Good for them. It was one last trick-or-treating before they all moved on and continued on with their adult lives. Mm. It was the first time, though, that Taylor and her sister had ever spent Halloween apart. Oh, that's so sad because we know she's going to get murdered that Halloween, the first year they don't go together. It is so sad. Twins always have that special bond with each other. And you're telling me that her twin sister's name is Christy and she's so much like me? Yes, there were so many things that made this case hit so close to home that it was creepy. Taylor pulled social media for opinions on her costume choices. She had narrowed it down to a woodland fairy or a zombie, but she was having troubles deciding. I love that. I love how different those are. (laughs) She should have went as a zombie woodland fairy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in the end, her love for the Walking Dead TV show won out. And she spent the afternoon getting ready. She put on her costume of jeans and a white shirt covered with a loose purple blouse that was torn artistically and had fake blood applied in all the right places. While texting back and forth with her friends making plans, she did her makeup just right, giving her the eerie look of death with open gaping wounds. It sounds awesome, but it's also so eerie since we know what's coming. Mm Mm-hmm. Taylor had texted that Zoe was on her way and that together they would meet at Clay's house around 6 p.m. After playfully texting her boyfriend Colton about sharing her loot when she got back that night, Taylor left her house around 5.45 p.m., right after she had her mom take a picture of her in her costume. She was obviously proud of her handiwork. She looked awesome. Her mom said goodbye and told her to be safe just like she always did. It was a short distance between Taylor and Clay's house. To this day, no one knows why she didn't wait for her friend Zoe that night. For some reason, she struck out on her own, maybe thinking that she would meet her along the way. Or maybe she was just excited to collect candy and wanted to get started. Taylor walked the path that was well known to her and took a shortcut that was used by a lot of people between Rosedale Ave and Pleasant Valley Road along the train tracks just as the sun was setting low on the horizon. At 6.02, Taylor sent her boyfriend a text message that read, being creeped. This was Taylor's wording that the couple had used before when somebody was checking them out. (gasps) But what was unusual about this text was that it was misspelt, and it gave the impression of being typed in a hurry. Taylor had written C-R-R-E-P-E-D, doubling the R and writing only a singular E. Taylor was a meticulous speller, even when it came to texting. Oh no. Unfortunately, this Little mistake was only picked up on a short time later when Taylor did not meet up with her friends. When Taylor didn't show up at Clay's house, at first they thought that she was just running late, but that wasn't really like her. It didn't take long before they began to get worried. Taylor was not answering any texts. Again, very unusual behavior for her. She was always prompt to reply. They started calling around to see where she was. They notified her boyfriend, her sister, and her mom, and no one knew where she was. Oh, what a panic. Somewhere during her 15-minute walk, she had disappeared. Around 7.30, some local boys alerted Taylor's sister, Christy, that they had found Taylor's phone on the railroad tracks. Christy and Taylor's friends met up with the boys and recovered her phone a short time later and began searching the area. Knowing that Taylor would never leave her phone behind, they notified the police and those out on patrol began to keep an eye out for an 18-year-old girl dressed as a zombie. Oh, 
At 8.45 that night, Colton and Zoe found Taylor laying face down in the ditch among bushes by the tracks. The left side of her head rested against a metal pipe. She was less than a kilometer from her home. Oh. She was alive, but having trouble breathing. Her friends knew that she was injured, but they didn't really know exactly the extent of her injuries because there were the real injuries mixed in with all the fake zombie ones she had created. Oh, right. It was very clear, though, that she was in trouble. Taylor's mom, Marie, who had been called, raced to the scene, arriving around the same time as the first officer, and flagged him down into the area where her daughter was lying struggling to breathe unconscious. Her friends and the officer laid their coats over Taylor in an effort to keep her warm and protected as her mom grabbed hold of her, telling her over and over again, just fight it, you can make it, you're going to make it, you're going to survive. That is heartbreaking. It is. I cannot imagine as a mother having to go through that. I literally have goosebumps right Mm -hmm. now. Just watching the scene would contribute to PTSD for the officer. Wow. And you would just have that hope. Oh, they found her. She's alive. And you would not want to believe that she's not going to make it. It's so true. Emergency personnel arrived on the scene around 9 p.m. and rushed Taylor to the local hospital where she was soon transferred to the bigger hospital in Kelowna because of the extent of her injuries. The doctors treating her pick up on the fact that this isn't just an accident, and a trained sexual assault nurse is called to collect evidence, even though there are no signs of sexual assault. Taylor died later in the early morning hours of November 1st. Her injuries were just catastrophic. The autopsy revealed that Taylor had numerous injuries. She had a facial laceration around her right eye, a laceration and abrasions of her lower lip and bruising inside of her mouth from the blows that she had received. There were scratches and bruising on her shoulder and defensive wounds on both hands, including two broken fingers. Oh. Six five-centimeter long irregular lacerations to the back of her scalp had resulted in a skull fracture. Each of these blows had been delivered by an elongated heavy object And based on their orientation, it was assumed that they were all delivered from the same position. The pathologists believed that any one of these blows would have knocked her unconscious, and the combination of all six were unsurvivable. Pieces of the fractured skull had broken into several fragments, entering her brain and causing it to bleed from several areas. There were also ligature marks found around Taylor's neck. This is what the doctors had noticed while trying to save her life and why the sexual assault nurse had been called in. The marks indicated that a smooth cord or a similar object had been tightened around Taylor's neck enough to cut off the blood flow and cause her to lose consciousness. It was evident that Taylor had been conscious though when her attacker had applied the ligature to strangle her. There were scratch marks along the ligature marks. These samples that the nurse collected from under Taylor's fingernails would be Taylor's voice in catching the dirtbag mat. So her own skin and DNA was under her nails? Mm -hmm. She was clawing at her own neck. Oh my gosh. As police investigate the crime scene, they find blood splatter on the ground and trees at the site, but have very little else to go on. One newly deposited vodka bottle was found along the tracks, but when tested, it revealed no DNA. This same bottle would be the source of a lot of talk, though, as the officer first on the scene was accused of being the one to throw it away. What? Mm -hmm. And he was later dismissed from his post. He would deny the accusation and later file a lawsuit against the RCMP on how they handled the whole situation. But there was a lot of talk about this vodka bottle. What officer is going to get out of his vehicle to a crime scene and be like, oh, yeah, I got to chuck this vodka bottle off of me? Well, when they were all laying their coats down on Taylor, 
he emptied his pockets. And Zoe said that she saw him throw a bottle out of his coat. Oh. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of talk about how he had contaminated the scene and had he been drinking on the job and he outright denied all the accusations, but he was dismissed and he did lose his later lawsuit against the RCMP. Oh, so he might have kind of forgot it was in his pocket. And then when he went to put the jacket down was like, oh, crap, I got to get rid of this. Yeah, it wasn't the only thing that he emptied out of his pockets. He had collected all of his personal keys and stuff like that out of his pockets. He would later say it was a box of pens that he threw away. And the prosecution tried to use this as evidence that he had been drinking that night. But he said he threw a box of pens and there were pens scattered about. There's no record in the evidence log of any pens being collected. They were later found in the same evidence bag as his coat. So his coat was put into an evidence bag. And then during his court trial, they brought out the evidence bag with his coat. There's pens. Oh, then they did this whole dramatic reenactment with his coat on could the pens have actually been still in his pocket and come out in the bag, but they couldn't have. And so they think that maybe they just logged it with his coat and never mentioned them. Right. Did he go back and tamper with evidence and put the pens in there? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> Big rabbit hole. But there is this whole thing about the RCMP officer. It's actually pretty sad. Both of him and his wife were both RCMP officers. And after this whole ordeal, they both went off on stress leave. Oh, it would be, especially if he wasn't drinking on the job. Yeah. And this was a misallegation. Mm -hmm. But it was taken very seriously. As it should be. Mm -hmm. During the police investigation, they canvassed the neighborhood and they learned that two distinct screams were heard by neighbors shortly after 6 p.m. But they had all just been chalked up to the usual kind of antics that go on on a Halloween night. The last thing from everyone's mind was something as sinister as murder. Yeah, I wouldn't think anything if I heard some kids screaming at six o'clock, prime trick-or-treat time on Halloween. That's right. And so these few witnesses felt awful afterwards. Oh, you would. It's mm -hmm. not their fault, but you would. Yeah. Taylor's family and friends and the whole community of Armstrong mourned for Taylor, and they struggled to come to terms with what had happened in their sleepy little town. An unknown stranger had appeared out of nowhere and attacked one of their beloved children for no apparent reason at all. Most were in shock, thinking that nothing like this could ever happen in their small town, and fear set in. The fear only increased a week after Taylor's death. When there appeared like there was no leads to follow, a letter was received by the police from someone claiming to be the killer and threatening further violence against women. What? It's a bizarre thing that happened in this case. Was it Matt, or was this just someone wanting to claim it? Well, police weren't able to authenticate the letter because it lacked any specific details about Taylor's murder. But to be on the safe side, they did issue warnings to the people of Armstrong to be extra careful. If the letter was from Matt or the killer as they knew him, who knew when he would strike again? If it was from some other sick individual seeking attention, then there were two deranged people wandering the streets. Oh yeah, that's a scary thought too. Mm -hmm. Either way, this is not good. No. The mayor of the town issued a letter warning people not to walk outdoors at night and open the arena as a safer environment for people to gather or exercise or do what they needed to do. Wow. They took it very seriously. Good for them. They had these huge projects to improve lighting around town, but all of this did little to subdue the fears of the townspeople who were convinced that they had a killer walking among them. Three weeks after the murder, police got their first big break in the case that would eventually point them towards Matt. The DNA that was collected from under Taylor's fingernails was a mix of hers and the killer's. 
She had been able to scratch Matt as he attacked her. Good. Police now had something to work with. And I know you said that there was a rape kit performed. What was the result of that? Like, I know there was no outwardly visible indication that she had been raped, but had she been? No, there was no signs of rape at all. That's odd, too, for him to go from being sexually motivated to then not. I mean, it's good that he didn't, but that's surprising. Well, I wouldn't quite say he wasn't sexually motivated. He just didn't have the opportunity. When they ran the DNA through the data bank, it didn't hit on any known individual. But it did hit on the DNA that had been collected from the Kelowna woman that Matt had attacked in 2005. This heightened the fear even more because they knew now that they had a repeat offender on their hands that was escalating. Police were desperate to find their guy and they pull out all the stops. And I have to say, the police work in this case is pretty amazing. They hit the ground running and they just did not stop. Police try to push the laws and appeal to run family DNA. This would have allowed investigators to search for close, partial matches in the genetic databases. This, unfortunately, though, is not allowed in Canada. But at the time, it was being used in several different countries. There is a lot of research to show that crime often runs in families. One study conducted in the United States showed that 30% of men in the prison system have brothers who are also incarcerated. Ooh, like the Reigns brothers? Exactly! <laughs> just like the Reigns brothers. Unfortunately, though, it just wasn't an option for the police in this case. In Canada, it's not allowed because of the privacy laws. But RCMP representatives have lobbied for the right to use family DNA searches. It totally should be allowed. It's ridiculous, actually. If you're investigating a vicious attack or a murder, it should be allowed. Mm-hmm. It's so crazy to me that it's not. And I have a hard time when we protect the privacy of these dirtbags. Right. And even for me, if I found out that it was a relative of mine, I'm not worried about me. I'm wanting this person to be caught. Mm -hmm. So police connect with Matt's previous victim, and they have her work with a sketch artist to draw a picture of her attacker, and then they post it everywhere. On November 23rd, 2011, police released the sketch to the public, alerting the media that this is a sketch of what the killer looked like five years ago. Because the attacks were within a relatively close proximity to each other, over the five-year span, they believe that the murderer is a resident of the Okanagan Valley. The sketch they release is of a man that is described as a white man with darker skin tone between 25 and 26 years old. Police say that the suspect has brown eyes, short dark hair, and is between 5'8 and 5'10 with a stocky build. He also has large, distinct sideburns and thick eyebrows. Ooh. They also give the public specific things to look for in the behaviors that might help identify the killer. They appeal to the public telling them that someone somewhere knows something or has seen something that has made them suspicious and they plead for them to come forward. The officer notes that the man responsible for killing Taylor might have come home after Halloween with scratches on his face and neck and that they might have been experiencing social or financial problems leading up to the murder, and police say that he might have acted strange or withdrawn from normal life afterwards. So they don't just shove this picture up on the TV screen and say, has anybody seen this person? They give very specific behavioral characteristics for people to look for. Like, did he act like this after? Maybe he was acting like this before. Well, even just mentioning the scratches, because maybe to you, a drawn photograph may not ring a bell, but when you're like, oh, wait, I know this guy and he had scratches on his face and his arms. And I guess he could kind of look like that composite sketch. Right. They're just 
making sure that people have multiple different areas to draw connections to. Police set up a tip line. And these can often cause a lot of extra work that results in very little information. But the people of the Okanagan stepped up in their fear to try and bring this dirtbag to justice. The dedicated police officers waded through over a thousand tips that were received and sift out 60 tips that are all about one man. One name keeps coming up again and again. Matt Forrester. They're able to pull his cell phone records and show him in Armstrong at the time that Taylor was attacked. And they begin to question his family, friends, landlord, and former employers about his whereabouts. His landlord comes forward to tell police that he left his apartment in Lumbee quickly and very suspiciously right after Halloween. He had asked for his deposit back, but when he was told it would take a few days, he just left without it. Despite their strong suspicion that they have the right guy, police can't pinpoint where Matt is. By January 2012, investigators are focusing primarily on Matt and suspect that he has had some help to disappear. He ran to daddy for help? Yeah, good old dad. When Matt had gone to his father after killing Taylor, Stephen, instead of encouraging his son to confess, helped him escape. Oh, what a dirtbag too. Mm-hmm. Matt fled the province while Stephen lied and told people and the police that Matt had received a job offer to go work up north in the oil fields. The job promised to be a great opportunity for Matt, but the catch was that he had to leave immediately or else he would lose it. That's the story that Stephen told everyone to explain why Matt had left suddenly in early November. And honestly, in Canada, that could happen. Mm-hmm. People do leave quickly for jobs, especially in the oil patch. But not so much that you just flee your house and leave everything. No, it's true. And usually it's not permanent. Usually you still keep your residence because you're coming back. That's right. Stephen gave Matt money to flee and paid $500 to a friend's nephew that was in need of some quick cash to borrow his identification. <gasps> Stephen gave Matt Lee Shaw Cross's BCAA card, driver's license, an old bank card, and his social insurance number written down on a piece of paper. He even gave him stuffer receipts for the wallet to be able to lie about his movements and have fake things like, see, I was here at this store at this time. How badly did this guy need 500 bucks? That's not a lot of money to sell your identity and your soul. You think this is on the up and up that they're not going to do something shady with it? Oh, no, I'm pretty sure he knew that it was something shady. Wow. And his dad knows that he murdered Taylor. Yeah, he knows. Oh. Along with all that, he gave him a disposable cell phone to contact him in a way that couldn't be traced and laid out what Matt should do to get away with murder. Stephen stayed behind and arranged to clean up his son's apartment and store his belongings. In the five months after the murder, Matt began a whole new life in Ontario with the help of his dirtbag dad. That's despicable. It really is. How far would you go to protect your child? No, I would never. If I had a son and I knew that he had murdered a woman... I'm turning him in. I'm sorry. Because even as a parent, I would feel such guilt that my son had murdered someone in the first place, let alone if I helped him get away and then to find out later that he murders more. Yeah. It's crazy to me that people have that question even in their minds. Sometimes that instinct to protect goes into overdrive. Oh, I'm the biggest mama bear around. But when it comes down to something like murder, I don't know. I can say it, I guess. But until you're put in that situation, you never really know how you're going to respond. Right. If it was a petty crime, maybe I would help them. (laughs) But you got to cross a line somewhere. All right, girls, you know to go to your dad if you do something really bad. (laughs) 
Police were highly suspicious of Stephen's story about Matt working up north because there was no evidence of that. They suspect that Stephen was helping hide his son, so they applied for a warrant to secretly put surveillance on him and tap the pay-as-you-go phone that they had seen him with. Oh, good. In late March of 2012, they were able to intercept three calls that would give them Matt's location. On March 25th, police listened as Matt tells his dad about using his advice to switch the numbers around on the social insurance number at his new job in a glass factory in Calling Ridge, Ontario. Stephen tells Matt that the cops are interviewing the family and that he is arranging for new paperwork, and he advises Matt that he should drop the Shawcross identity soon, but that police, quote, don't know where you are at. Wow. The next day, the two talk again and discuss the price to pay for the new identity, and Matt promises to pay his dad back. During this call, it is clear that neither suspect that their conversation is being recorded. And so the police just continue to listen in on their conversations to see if they can get them to say more incriminating things because they're not fearful of them running because they're saying, oh, don't worry, they're not on to us. Oh, this is brilliant. Mm -hmm. The third call intercepted was on April 3rd. In it, Matt tells his dad that he had to get a new job as a painter because the manager at the glass factory noticed something wrong with the social insurance number that he was using. Stephen fills Matt in on the investigation heating up around their family. He tells Matt that he removed a tracking device from his mother's car and that he had to remove it so that they couldn't be traced. He also tells him that Lee has been talking about Matt using his identity. Who is this Lee guy? He's like, well, I'm going to give them my identity for 500 bucks, but then I'm going to talk about it and complain. He's going to let everybody know that it's not me. I just let someone use all my stuff. That makes you an accomplice, no? You're helping a known fugitive. It might have been had he known what they were going to use his identity for. But if you don't ask questions. Yeah, but anyone who needs your identity is not on the up and up. No, it's true. But I don't think that he knew that Matt had committed murder. No, but I'm sure he could have assumed that he had committed a crime. It's true. Stephen said that they should get rid of the cell phones. But then he backtracked in the conversation saying that if the police knew where Matt was, they'd already be there. Matt asked for his dad's house number and Stephen said, quote, The last thing you want to do is call that phone at the house. Believe me, it's hotter than a firecracker. Oh. So this phone call is the first indication that the police have that Stephen knows that he's being listened to. Right, because the tracker on the car and the phone. Mm-hmm. Police file for an arrest warrant and both Matt and his dad on April 4th are taken into custody. Stephen, at the age of 58, was arrested at his home in Cherryville and was charged with obstruction of justice and accessory after the fact. While in custody, he admits to helping Matt. He even says that he knows it was wrong to hide him to an undercover police officer. (laughs) The undercover cop asked him why he didn't just send his son to Mexico, and Stephen said that he thought about it, but decided, quote, jails in Mexico were worse for his son. But does that mean that he believes his son's going to continue to commit crimes and that's why he would get arrested in Mexico? Because he's not going to go to jail in Mexico for the crime he committed in Canada. I think there is several statements made by his family members later that indicate that they knew he had a problem with aggression against women. But that just makes what his dad's doing even worse. Mm -hmm. Because he's putting so many other women at risk. Right. And he would rather save his son than preserve those future victims. Right. You know what should happen to his dad? 
The same thing that happened to the girl in the parlor. And then maybe to have some understanding as to how horrible the acts that his son is actually committing. And what he's potentially putting women through. Yeah. There, I said it. I put it out there. And that's why I had to put everything that his dad did in here. I couldn't just make it about Matt. No. Because his dad's a dirtbag. Yeah. He's knowingly letting his son be a predator. I'm going to help you, son. Don't worry. Yeah. You can get to all the women you want in your life. Sickening. Mm-hmm. Matt was arrested at a Collingridge motel, much to the shock of his new friends that he was making there. A Collingridge convenience store owner said that Matt regularly visited his shop to buy cigarettes in the beginning of December and continued through February. Eerily, in his statement, he says, quote, I've seen him with a couple of girls. A 22-year-old woman, a local bartender, had thought that Matt was a nice guy and considered him a friend. After the fact, she did say that there were things about him that were suspicious like introducing himself as Matt at the bar and then to other people as Zach around town, all the time using Lee Shawcross's name at his Georgian employment agency. She was incredibly grateful that she had followed her gut and turned down Matt's invitation to go on a hike with him. She said, quote, just glad I didn't because it would have been just the two of us. Who knows what would have happened? If Matt's urges would have surfaced again, this poor woman, Elizabeth, could have been his next victim. Oh, I wholeheartedly believe she would have. Mm -hmm. I do not think he was inviting her on a hike to get to know her better. She wouldn't have survived it. Yeah. Matt, at 26, was brought back to BC and charged with second-degree murder and five others, including sexual assault, unlawful confinement, break and enter, and assault with a weapon for his previous crimes in 2004 and 2005. Good. On April 6, Matt was interviewed for seven and a half hours by the RCMP. During the interview, Matt is emotional and at times sobbing as officers skillfully get him to tell them more and more, using every tactic available to them. At first, Matt gives little more than one-word answers. While admitting to feeling bad about killing, he doesn't share any details with police. He is overly concerned about how everything will affect his family members and asks to see them repeatedly. Police use this to their advantage and arrange for Matt to have some communication from both of his siblings. Unlike their dad, both try to convince Matt to do the right thing and fess up to what he has done. A recording from his sister is played for Matt. She tells him, quote, I love you very much. You'll always be my big brother. Just be honest and do the right thing. His brother Mike is brought into the interrogation room and pleads with Matt to do the right thing, saying, quote, Whatever happened hasn't just hurt our family, but other people's too. He says, quote, What you can do is get some peace of mind. Something very interesting that comes up during the conversation between the two brothers is what appears to be a previous knowledge of Matt's urges to dominate women. Mike says he should have listened earlier and that Matt, quote, can't control this anymore. You're going to hurt more girls. Oh, what a sad realization for them. But this is what decent human beings do. They encourage their loved one to turn themselves in and to tell the truth because they know he'll keep doing it. Right. And to get help. Right. You're showing more love for your brother or your family member doing that than aiding and abetting. Yes. I thought it was very interesting to see the two sides of the family and how each of them expressed their concern and love for him. Right. One was willing to hide him and the other was like, no, we need to get you help and we need to confess and do the right thing. Right. After talking with his brother, Matt begins to open up more and more about what occurred on Halloween night. The sergeant asks Matt, am I right to say you're going for sex? And Matt replies, yeah, it just got out of hand. 
Matt's version of events taken from this interview and later interactions with his lawyer was that he was on a binge that day. He had been for a while. From the time of his sexual assault in Kelowna, he had upped his drug addictions, adding mushrooms, ecstasy, and crack. Yikes. That summer, he had started to use drugs more and more after he had lost his job. And he had even tried to deal drugs, but instead he had consumed all of his product. No way. Mm-hmm. On October 31st, 2011, he had began drinking vodka, smoking pot, and doing mushrooms earlier in the day. He traveled from Enderby to Armstrong in the late afternoon and decided that he should park his truck in the town because he wasn't safe enough to drive. He decided to walk around town to sober up. Around 6 p.m., he saw Taylor walking along the road near the tracks and he started following her. Oh. He talked to her for a few minutes trying to proposition her for sex. When she refused, he said he pushed her to the ground and just freaked out when Taylor started to scream. His version of the attack is very vague and disjointed, but he admits that he and Taylor had a, quote, scuffle that took them into the bushes where she was later found, and that he hit Taylor with a sturdy metal flashlight an unknown amount of times. He also says that he tried choking her with his hands, but she fought back, so he wrapped a shoelace around her throat. Oh my goodness. When she became unconscious, he fled, and later that night, he dumped the flashlight, his coat, and the shoelace in a dumpster in Vernon on his way back home. What I find interesting about his version of events is that he talks about hitting her first and then choking her with his hands and using the shoelace. The evidence, while not conclusive, would suggest that he actually choked Taylor first, then attacked her with the flashlight. And interestingly, the pathologist found no signs of bruising that would have been caused by him using his hands. And all the flashlight blows were delivered from the same position. So it makes me doubt his version of events a little bit. Right, because she would have been still in order for him to be able to hit her in the same spot repeatedly. She couldn't have been moving. Right, she would have already been unconscious by that time. Yeah, that makes more sense. Mm -hmm. And where the heck did this shoelace come from? I doubt he took the time to bend down and take the shoelace out of his shoe, which to me means he probably already had that in his pocket to be able to use to subdue a woman. That's what I think the evidence points to, is that he immediately tried to start strangling her first. Right. And the fact that he had that shoelace on his person for that purpose, to me, speaks premeditation. Absolutely, it does. Wait till you hear what he does with his trials. Oh, I'm already riled, Melissa. I don't know if I can take this. Whatever way it happened, though, my heart just breaks for the terror that Taylor lived through. That's a horrible last few minutes of your life. It's just so sad. And when you see her pictures in the memorial, it's just, it's heartbreaking. During his interview on April 6th, Matt makes several remorseful comments saying, quote, I was scared when I realized what I had done. I shouldn't have been there. I just meant to keep her quiet. I didn't want it to happen like this. I feel terrible about how everything worked out since. I wish I could change it, turn back time, but I can't. I feel really bad for her and her family, how everything worked out. If I could, I'd take it all back. I almost started to feel for him a little bit until he said, quote, I feel like I'm a good person. I'm just messed up. And sometimes I don't know what I'm doing until later. I know I have a problem, but spending years in jail is not going to help. I thought, you dirtbag, how remorseful can you be if you don't think being held accountable is going to help? 
Yeah, I didn't even start feeling sorry for him at the beginning. My nose has been turned up the whole time you read his quote. But I'm sorry, that is just selfish. You know you have this problem. You're admitting, yeah, I'm going to hurt women. You saw the force that it took to just crack a girl's head open. You knew exactly what you were doing. You're not entitled to her body. You're not entitled to her life. And if you think, oh, jail's not going to help me, so I'm just not going to turn myself in and just keep hurting these women. No, I'm sorry. You're a monster and you know it and you don't even care. Yeah, but he puts on a good act about being remorseful and, and being all teary and blubbery. No, if you're remorseful too, you're not using 10 different names and trying to hide. And trying to get away with it. Yeah, give me a break. After the interview, in light of the new information that the police gained during it, the murder charge against Matt was upgraded to first degree murder. Good. Because he was in the process of trying to get sex from her. Matt's Ford F-150 truck was taken in for processing and Taylor's blood was found on it on April 11, 2012 giving police further evidence against him. As trial dates began, the people of Cherryville were shocked and some were even defensive of two of their own. Most of the animosity, though, was towards the media and how they lumped the rest of the family in with the father-son dirtbag duo. Yeah, that's not okay, as the other ones were being decent about it. Mm -hmm. Stephen was granted bail, but was unable to raise the funds for it. When he finally appeared before court on May 7, 2014, he pled guilty to his charges saying, quote, I plead guilty so that they don't have to face a trial because they've suffered more than anyone should. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. They have. Marie, Taylor's mother, said that it was a, quote, pathetic attempt at an apology and said she felt the only reason why he pled guilty was because he couldn't afford the trial. Yeah, I'm not buying anything he's saying. I'm right with her. I think Marie would have been your kind of girl. Matt's case went to trial for the first time in March of 2014. The prosecution made a believable argument for the first-degree murder charge, even though the defense argued that Taylor had hit her head on the pipe on the ground when she and Matt scuffled after he had asked her for consensual sex. Yeah, you're not scuffling when it's consensual. No. Consensual is like, hey, you want to hook up? No. Okay, see ya, bye. Yeah. Not, oh, I'm going to scuffle with you and make you fall and hit your head. This defense team's arguments were maddening. Ugh. The jury of eight men and four women saw right through them. And Matt Forrester was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for 25 years. Outside the courtroom, Marie said, quote, Nothing will bring my daughter back, but at least justice was done. At least now, no other girl will meet the same fate that she met. We're just happy that this animal will be off the streets for a very long time. Wow, good for her. But wait, you said first trial. Please tell me he stays in prison and is not walking around in our country. I did say first trial. On appeal, the defense successfully argued that the judge had made two errors while instructing the jury that could have changed the outcome of the case. So Matt was granted the right to a second trial three years later. Melissa, honestly, this is going to be a flip the table moment again if you tell me he's out. Well, luckily he's not walking free, but shortly before the trial was to begin... In the spring of 2018, Matt, at the age of 32, made a deal to plead guilty to second-degree murder and forego the trial. The lesser charge that was agreed upon allowed Matt to claim that he knew his actions would kill Taylor, but he hadn't planned it in advance, and that he didn't fatally injure her while trying to sexually assault her, the element needed to prove the first-degree conviction. 
And I'm not sure how I feel about this, given his history and the fact that he admitted that he was after sex. It's bogus. Mm Mm-hmm. That's how I feel. Yeah. I think he should have got first degree. Absolutely. During his sentencing, he was unable to meet anybody's eyes as he read from a piece of paper, quote, I'm so sorry that I have taken your loved one away from you. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't feel regret. I hope that in time you will be able to move on with your lives and one day find peace. Again, Marie spoke out against the emptiness of the apology and pointed out that Matt hadn't even said Taylor's name. She said, quote, I don't think he feels remorse. I don't think they should let anyone out who still poses a threat to society. Women shouldn't have to walk around afraid. Oh, a hundred percent. That's so true. And if you are feeling so much remorse every single day of your little pathetic life, why are you making a deal? Mm -hmm. Why are you not wanting to be punished for what you did? Be held accountable. Yeah. It was first degree murder. Mm -hmm. And he had fled for five months and appeared to actually be living up life in the same pattern that he had been drinking and trying to pick up women. Yeah. And not being able to say Taylor's name means he didn't even view her really as a person. She was an object that he wanted, and when he didn't get it, he destroyed her. It's so sad. On June 5th, 2018, after hearing the victim impact statements, the judge agreed to the sentence that had previously been agreed upon by both the prosecution and the defense. A life sentence with no eligibility for parole for 17 years. So essentially, he's able to apply for parole seven years earlier. Yeah, that's not okay. Matt also received six additional years for each of his attacks on the other women, but they are both being served concurrently with his murder sentence. Oh, concurrently should not be a thing. Nope. They should all just get added together. They should. Matthew Forrester will be eligible to apply for parole on April 4th in 2029 at the age of 43. There is a clause in the law, though, that would allow him to apply in 2027, but it seems unlikely that he would be granted it. But we've seen that happen before. Melissa, that's too soon. Mm -hmm. That is coming up around the corner, really. Yes. During his time so far in prison, he has been described as a... Dirtbag? No. Model prisoner. Oh, you know I hate that. Yes. Oh, I hate it. I hate it. No, you're not. You're not a model prisoner. You're not. (laughs) You're a rapist and a murderer. Yep. He has taken part in rehabilitation programs, and his last known location was the medium security prison in Abbotsford, BC. His only known difficulties in jail were mentioned in his father's court proceedings. Matt had been the target of an attack in prison, and his father, who was incarcerated at the same prison, defended him against an assault by throwing coffee in the other inmate's face. Both Matt and the other inmate were burned to the point of blisters by the hot coffee. Puke in my mouth. So he's still trying to protect his son even though they weren't supposed to have any contact in jail. Yeah, what is that all about? I don't know. As a parent, I know we have this overwhelming urge to protect our children, but for this duo, I'm not sure Stephen's interventions were even actually helping his son in the long run. No, in my eyes, Stephen's partly responsible for his son's actions because he knowingly is trying to help him and allow him to continue being a dirtbag. Mm -hmm. Stephen has now served his sentence and has been released. His marriage to Deborah has fallen apart since the charges. She was unable to stand by him. But now he's just a free man. In 2013, a 185 meter memorial trail was opened along the tracks in Armstrong, where Taylor was walking that fateful night. The idea was Christie's. 
The path was created by the Van Deest family with the help of the city and Kelowna Pacific Railway, and of course the community that had always been so supportive. Lighting along the trail was a priority. The trail is adorned with figurines, and at the halfway point there's a gazebo with benches and a collage of Taylor. It is a beautiful spot. And that is the case of the sniveling little boy of a man, the perverted dirtbag, Matthew Forrester, and his meddling criminal father. I just feel so much for Taylor and her family. This case got me riled. It's just such a sad and tragic thing to happen. And especially when there's those elements that people knew about his behavior ahead of time, and it maybe could have been prevented, just makes it that much sadder. Yeah, if his dad hadn't covered for him with that very first attack, maybe his life would have turned out a whole lot differently and Taylor might still be alive. Oh, 100% she would still be alive. Mm -hmm. He could have went on and got help and prevented two other women's attacks. Right. Because he even said himself he recognized he had these urges in this problem. So maybe he could have gotten some help for it. Mm -hmm. And his dad holding him accountable would have made him know that being held accountable is a good thing. Right. And that this really isn't okay to Mm -hmm. be doing. Yeah. And it's so heartbreaking because Taylor was doing such an innocent thing. She hadn't put herself in a risky situation. Not that a victim should ever be blamed for doing that, but it was such a childlike fun thing that she was wanting to participate in. It was such a pure event and she was met with a true nightmare. He just stole all of the innocence away Mm -hmm. from the whole town. He really did. But that's what dirtbags do. And when we talk about dirtbags like this, it just proves to me that monsters are real. So watch out this week as you celebrate Halloween. Yes, please be safe. Have lots of fun. Eat lots of chocolate bars. And we will be back with you next week when I have another case for you. Until then. See ya. Bye. Let's try this again. Okay. I am creating a new trip name. Nashville. (laughs) Melissa and Christy do Nashville. It's coming soon. (laughs) I see things that just aren't there all the time. (laughs) It says I'm crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Using the shrieks and skills. Skills? I just need a whole reset right now. (laughs) (laughs) What can I throw at you? You're getting all worked up about I the lady know. in your car. That's because all... <laughs> my heart is like pounding again, just rethinking about it. Oh, rethinking about it. Remembering. <laughs> Same thing. I said to Melissa, I wonder if that was a woman whose case we need to cover. Oh. Because a few days later, I saw a boy laying on my couch. How else are you going to get all that candy? Right? I don't think you're ever too old to go trick-or-treating. Agreed. My mic just moves like randomly. It's the ghosties, Christy. It might be. It was just moving. The wow. next day. Sorry. The wow. next day. Okay, I won't okay, say Okay, go ahead. Wow. That's all, <laughs> That's all you had. Yeah. Oh, man. Here, I'm like, okay, what's she going to say now? Wow. He was putting other women at risk. Punch that guy. <laughs> I'm so mad at the dad. So true. He's 56 or whatever. He should know better. Mm-hmm. You're dang near a grandfather age. Well, luckily he's not walking three. Oh. Three. 
<laughs> He's walking four? <laughs> Where is something I can throw at you? I need like some stuffies by me. Or some wrestlers. <laughs> you did this to me before. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.